Hello, and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. You guys, today on the show, we have my friend Michael Milligan uh, with us. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm really happy to be here, and it's good to talk to you again. <laughs> it's been too long, man. Yeah, yeah, it has. It has. Well, um, for those who don't know Michael, Michael is a performer who has been writing and acting for the theater over the last 20 years. Um, he's appeared in all kinds of both on and off Broadway productions. Um, Mike did his theatrical training at Juilliard, which I heard is a decent school. Uh, he won the John Houseman Prize for Excellence in Classical Drama. He loves Shakespeare. It's taking you around the world, I understand. Um, at one point with the Shakespeare, maybe at the Shakespeare Theater, the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, and maybe most importantly, without ignoring the great work of John Lovitz, I consider Mike the ultimate master thespian, uh, famed owner of the spirit car and legendary apparel designer. So did that about capture your resume there, Mike? Yeah, you did leave out the, uh, the history of the early American Revolution Ooh. film that we created in our American history class in uh what was that 10th grade or 11th I believe 11th grade could have been 11th you know? yeah yeah that was a pretty epic film for yeah maybe and, we can maybe we can find some footage to link to to that um I think that is like uh in demand footage I don't know we'll have to contact Ed for that um who did some tremendous shoulder footage he managed the camera and and was in the play or Play film, film. I don't know. Spirit of '76 still sticks with me from that. From yes, that. So yes, yes, yes. Bring it back. Bring it back. You're an actor. Why don't you do something with that? <laughs> People are shutting this show down already. Here we go. Yeah. All right. All, all right. right. Uh, so you recently, um, not so recently, over the past few years, you've been involved with something. You wrote and have been acting this one-man play called Mercy Killers, and. Um, for those who don't know, today we're going to kind of jump into the this conversation about healthcare in our country, um, and uh, there's a very specific reason I wanted you to come on because this really isn't a a political show per se, but we do want to wrestle with the big questions that we all face. and um, And over following you over the years, I've seen you engage with this, and you kind of take on some of the deeper core convictions about what our uh, thoughts about healthcare are rooted in. And let's just start with Mercy Killers. It's a play you've been performing around the, the um, from the press. Maybe the summary statement was uh, Blue Collar Joe grapples with his red state ideals when he realizes the measures he must take to care for his beloved wife. A surprisingly tender love story, Mercy Killers is an unblinking look at healthcare in America. Um, and then I'm going to read one more before I hand it over to you, Mike, where there was a, so many great reviews about your show. Um, but this one from Buddy Robinson, who's one of the coordinators of the Greater Minnesota Healthcare Coalition, uh, gave, I really resonated with me, where he said, Michael Milligan's Mercy Killers is a powerful teaching tool to deliver the emotional impact of how our healthcare system chews up and spits out so many Americans. This masterfully written and performed play displays the agonizing, dehumanizing suffering needlessly imposed on a decent people by a system that turns healthcare into a market commodity instead of a basic human right. Mercy Killers poignantly demonstrates how rugged individualism can't compete with diseases and expenses that can strike down anyone. So I'm tooting your, own, tooting your horn here for you, but I'm only laying that out there so people kind of get an idea where we're headed. But mm -hmm. that's the reviews on Mercy Killers. But why don't you tell us a little about it? What's the... Um, You've performed it all over the country, including very prestigious medical institutions like the Mayo Clinic. But just sort of walk us through the, you know, the story behind Mercy Killers. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a story, as you mentioned, of Joe. He's an auto mechanic from southeastern Ohio. His wife gets sick, um, and he's sort of confronted by the limitations of his, you know, his, his worldview. He's kind of a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of a guy, and he's done everything right, but in his time of need, the system fails him and um, it's sort of set in this in the time period of the financial crisis and the housing bubble crash. So they end up losing their home and and uh, losing their insurance and 
the play is set in a police station. So we're, you know, we're listening in on the conversation between Joe and a policeman who was listening to his testimony. So that's sort of how the play is set up. Um, <clears throat> I wrote it <clears throat> after a very tumultuous period where I had three experiences of the healthcare system, three personal experiences. Um, you know, I, I, I did go to Juilliard when I finished school. I was very lucky. I, I, I worked right away and I, I worked steadily. I, I was never without health insurance. Uh, the actors union actually has really great health insurance, but, uh, you know, a, a little way into my real world experience, um, I was confronted with the reality of, of how things go for a lot of people. Um, you know, before that time, I never gave health insurance or, or you know, health care uh, a second thought, which I think is what a lot of people experience when they're younger, because mm -hmm. we're, you know, we we believe that we are uh, immortal and impervious <laughs> mm -hmm. to to the, the tragedies that kind of we hear about on the periphery of, of our consciousness. But but um, basically what happened was I, I was in a relationship with someone who um, she she had a lot of uh, medical needs and, um, you know, more and more they consumed um, finances and just, you know, the energy of our, our relationship. And uh, that kind of coincided with the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was you know, a, a short 20 minute walk from where I was living in New York City. So I, I walked down there one day to see what was going on. And I saw a lot of other people uh, that didn't look like the images that were often showed on TV of kind of, you know, radical people, anarchists. <laughs> it, it was really just a lot of people that were just caught up in, in, in uh, uh, the, the financial crisis and ruined or, or had medical bills or, you know, were struggling with their mortgage payments and, and they were just out in the street because there was nothing else they could do. Mm -hmm. um, but what that experience made me realize was the extent to which in my own life and in my relationship that we were just treading water, you know, just trying to stay afloat. And it made me aware of um, a situation that I think is common for a lot of people is that as a medical crisis, uh, uh, emerges, you know, a lot of people just become so consumed by it that they kind of disappear because all their energy is sucked up into just taking, trying to take care of themselves or their partner. And, and so tragically, we withdraw when, um, when ironically, the only way that we can address this, these problems is by coming together. So I, I sometimes refer to our, to, to our situation now is, is that it's a kind of silent Holocaust, our healthcare system, because, uh, when it, when a crisis hits people, as I said, they, they become silent because they are consumed by their problem. Also, you know, there, there are so many dark emotions that, that are, that go along with a, a medical crisis and our struggling with often paying for, for our medical care, it's feelings of humiliation, anger, um, shame, and then being the partner of someone going through that, there's, you know, there can be feelings of resentment, which is not something that you see on an episode of Grey's Anatomy or, you know, uh, ER or something like that. But that's what, that's to me what really people's experience of the healthcare system is, is, is bureaucracy and trying to cut through paperwork and financing. And, and so, so that was this first experience. Um, the next thing was a couple months later, one of my classmates from Juilliard 
showed up at the stage door at a theater I was performing at in Washington, D.C., and he had he was homeless. He'd been homeless for a year and a half. And um, he was there with a bag that he had his stuff in. And he had had a mental breakdown um, a, a year and a half earlier. He, he had paranoid uh, uh, delusions. And so he was in the court system in in D.C., but he was homeless and he was he was having to navigate the court system for a certain period of time so that he could be allowed to see visit his daughter, basically. Um, so I was trying to get him situated. You know, I brought him into my place, my the temporary apartment we had in the actors had in D.C. And uh, but in addition to to being homeless, he also had some medical problems. He had this giant lump on his arm. He had a slipped disc in his neck um, and whatever kind of drugs he was on, um, you know, for psychiatric drugs he was on were not being monitored appropriately. It was mm. very apparent to me. So so I wanted to to get him to some, you know, to to a doctor. And so that was just absolutely shocking and mind opening to me, like how difficult that was trying mm. to find some place to take my friend. Um, Where did you uh, even start? Googling. Okay. You know, free, okay. free clinic. There you go. What I was looking for. And it was, I, I couldn't find it. I just couldn't find it. So finally I did find a, oh, this should resonate with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe. I found a homeless shelter, uh, that had a free clinic attached to it. And, uh, I called and, um, said, you know, my friend, da, 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 the situation, they said, okay, yes, he can make an appointment, but you realize we require proof of homelessness. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm like, what's that? Is that a, a hole in your shoe of a certain size or something? But <laughs> no, you had to be registered full time with a homeless shelter to be able to, to go to this clinic. So here's the situation. My friend was, he had been, but it was a, a, you know, it was a religious homeless shelter. It, it was, a, you know, kind of a fundamentalist place. And J my friend John actually was the, his father was a minister. So he was very, you know, very knowledgeable of scripture and stuff like that. So he was familiar with the routine. Well, there were sort of Bible study requirements and you okay. know, these meetings that you would go to and and uh, it, he liked to philosophize in those places, right? <laughs> but in the in this conversation, like he he get carried away. He kind of had sort of transcendentalist perspective of of biblical passages and stuff like that. And there was a guy there that didn't like where he was leading the conversation. Yeah, mm. and there was also sort of these rankings that you would have. Um, and at some point, that guy pulled him aside and said, okay, now you're, I don't know what they were exactly, but now you, you, can, you deserve this alpha badge. Right? Okay. And John says, oh, but you can't give that to me. You, you know, I have to get that from the, the, the pastor who runs this place. He says, no, no, I'm allowed to give it to you. Yeah, because uh, I'm, I'm a higher level and I can do that. So John's like, okay, okay, he puts it on. Later... He was called up to the to the main guy's office, and that guy was there, and he had accused John of stealing his badge. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, oh, jeez. <laughs> so, so John got very angry. There was a there was a scene, and he was asked to leave the homeless shelter Ugh. and come back. So anyway, this was just this was just background for why John was not registered at a at a homeless shelter. And Which just as a side note, I mean, just not to interrupt your story completely, but yeah. for those listening, like when someone doesn't have really any physical belongings in the world for the most part, like their integrity might be one of the few things of value they have left. So if you attack that, realize you're attacking something very valuable <laughs> to that person. Yeah, that's that's true. That's 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 absolutely true. And John's dealing with being homeless was like a full time job because mm -hmm. he was trying to get his he didn't have any ID. So he was trying to to get, you know, uh, a D card and mm. get to these meetings that he had to get to. And, and there's, 
he has to walk to these places. So it's and to and to be allowed into to get a bed at a homeless shelter. Sometimes you have to be there by like two in the afternoon and mm-hmm. you have to stay. So it's and plus managing a mental condition. <laughs> not very to conducive that. to that, is it's, it? It's it is not. No. And um, so in the midst of this entire experience, I'm I'm thinking, God, why? You know, I, my my sort of inward experience is I want to help my friend. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm feeling, uh oh, he's going to pull me down with him. Right. Because I don't have much resources myself. So it's sort of that situation of, you you know, you can't, you can't, uh, rescue a drowning man when you're treading water yourself. Hmm. Yeah. And that conflict of those two things of, of my desire to help my friend and the fear of being dragged down, hmm. that kind of broke my heart a little hmm. bit. And it, and it made me realize the extent to which the previous few years, I'd just been wrapped up in my own survival so much that there wasn't even any space in my heart for other people and for other people's problems. Mm. Yeah. And and that's a terrible place to to have to live. And I think that a lot of us struggle with that. Yeah. Um but it also raised the question for me of why is all this on my shoulders, right? If mm. I lived in another country, I could take my friend to the doctor or the hospital and say, uh, here, you can see that he's a human being, so please give him treatment, right? In a, in a place where uh, universal, there's universal health care. Yes, I can go in with him, and there's no question about, well, what kind of insurance do you have? That isn't the first question that you're asked when you walk into the doctor, hmm. which is a horrible, dehumanizing um, situation that the first experience of walking into the doctor is a transaction like that. Hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, I, I took on some debt. I, I, I had to, I gave John a credit card to help him sort of manage. He had to remain in DC for a couple more months. Hmm. And I, you know, it was the only solution I could come up with to, I needed him to get out of the homeless shelters because it was bad for his, his mind. So he was, he was in, uh, hostels. Like (laughs) this is what we, I don't know if that was the best thing either, (laughs) but it really, it really lifted his spirits to be around, you know, other people and, and, um, who were, you know, not desperate and struggling, but sort of interesting international, uh, travelers or students. Yeah. And, uh, Anyway, um, I, you know, I carried that, that credit card debt for a while um, and, and eventually got him a bus ticket so he could get back to Indianapolis where he has some family and friends. So okay. out near you, actually. Um, the final thing that happened was uh, about a couple months later, I was without health insurance for the first time in my professional life. Um, I missed a premium payment because I'd moved a couple times the year before. Um, so three months into that insurance gap, or no, three weeks into it, um, I started passing kidney stones at oh, a yeah. uh, in the middle of a play reading. I was doing a reading of a new play, and uh, it, it worked well though because it was a very dramatic piece. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of, um, very authentic, and, and actually, huh? Actually, uh, the guy, the director offered me the part later on, which I did. I think he was disappointed later when I wasn't passing. <laughs> That's awful. But I, I had to excuse myself uh, at intermission and, and go home. And I sort of, you know, sort of crawled back to my uh, basement apartment in Jersey City. And I did what a lot of Americans do. Um, I got on the Internet to consult my personal concierge doctor okay. web md <laughs> always a good idea <laughs> when you when you don't have insurance the problem is web md is can be a very harsh diagnostic diagnostician i don't know if that's the right word but um he often gives you something three times worse than what you have exactly so i was convinced that i put in my s- symptoms and so i was convinced that i had kidney failure right Ooh. so the next uh 
the next Google search for that you do when you don't have uh, insurance is how much is it going to cost me to go to the emergency room, right? Okay. So so I did the search there, and it sounded like it was going to be with an ambulance, like eight thousand dollars, right? Wow. So I did I did the responsible American thing, which is the cost benefit analysis. <laughs> so so on the one hand, kidney failure three percent chance mortality if left untreated in two to three days or a hundred percent chance of eight thousand dollars so mm. as as an american i did you know what we do is i i stacked up the tylenol with the uh ibuprofen and mm. uh toughed it out right which by and, the way just for what it's <laughs> worth i'm sitting here listening to things so often in this conversation of healthcare. there's this idea i think and not for everyone but some that think people in one end of the spectrum are not thinking people, but there's, I mean, you're an intelligent guy and you're like, what do I do here? As there was no easy answer. So anyway, keep going with your, your alternating oh. painkillers right now. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm, as I'm laying there that, that night, I very painful, you know, and, and thankfully it turned out it's, it wasn't something very serious. It's just kidney stones, which is seriously painful, but not, you know, not, not a major health crisis mm -hmm. but it made me really think god this is what it's like uh you know for someone who who has something that is serious or something that's chronic and ongoing like what what the feeling is like um and it's a feeling i would say the feeling is is that you've been left behind you know that mm -hmm. you're you're not knowing where help or care is going to come from it just feels like you've been left behind by by everybody and um and so at that point i was like i got to do something about this i got to get involved with this issue um and uh it, you know after considering it for uh, a month or two it seemed like the best way for me to do that with my particular um uh talents and inclinations was to write a play about it and um and I chose to write a one-man show because, uh, it, you know, there's very little overhead and I could just start performing it um, without having to have it, you know, um, approved of by the literary manager of a theater, mm -hmm. which are oftentimes uh, <laughs> uh, funded by insurance companies and, <laughs> and the like who might not be interested in, in, yeah. in having a play about um how an insurance company, um, you know, rescinds the, the insurance of, of one of their people because of a technicality. Mm. Um, so, so I started to perform the play, um, for free. I, I, in the early goings of this, and this is mercy killers. You're talking about this point. Yeah, mercy killers. Okay. I, I would, uh, collaborate with an organization like healthcare for all Minnesota or, um, different organizations like that. I did a tour of, of Ohio with single payer action network who were thrilled that someone cared about this issue. And, and so they would, these volunt grassroots volunteers would become my, my sort of tour managers and, and, uh, uh, stage managers and, and ushers and, and get the word out and get people to a night of the theater that might be produced in a church basement or a community center or, uh, you know, the, meeting room of a library and um so we set up this kind of grassroots theater um and and what was wonderful about that experience is i'd often get people uh who were not regular theater goers but were just there because someone dragged them there you know mm. <laughs> and uh and, and and the play clearly resonated with people in a way that you know, I didn't know going into it that, that that would be the case. And and then we would have talkbacks after the show and people would get up and share their response to the play and also share sometimes, um, you know, a, an experience from their own life that they've had uh, um, or a loved one has had. And so I, I think that these kind of public events were very cathartic for people. Mm. Um, who otherwise might have felt completely isolated and like they had no no voice or, or no one listening. Um, so 
so that that kind of response has kept me uh, motivated to to keep doing the performance and and having the dialogue with people. So mm. that's kind of the background. Of mm. the, no, that's helpful. That's helpful. It, it kind of grounds it in reality. What what this the kind of the soil this was uh, grown out of. Um, you know, one of the things that that we've talked about in the past um, was kind of I was asking you. Uh, what role your your faith um, might have played in all this, um, just kind of in your own life and how it's kind of worked itself into Mercy Killers. And, um, you know, it's a tremendous work of art you've put together here. And, and I personally really appreciate that you've not only created it, but shared it with the world. And I just, I wonder where your faith has kind of played into all this, if you would, you know, just expand on that a little bit. Um, well, I think I think for me in my own spiritual journey, uh, you know, I think that, and I think this is true for a lot of, of us in our careers, like spirituality can just become a way of coping with, with life, um, a way of coping with, um, our situation, which seems, uh, unchangeable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, you know, these things exist in all profession. So for me, I was in a sort of very, um, a very sort of normal acting career, if there is such a thing, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you, you go to auditions, someone uh, invites you to audition, you get cast in a play, you do a play, you travel around, but there's not ever a sense that you are participating in deciding what art ought to be. Yeah. Or mm -hmm. what what the conversation ought to be. What should a play be about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of those things are determined by someone else. And oftentimes that person, their 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 decisions are made by, you know, well, how many people can we get into the theater to to sell seats to a very particular audience, which is often upper middle class of fluent um, white people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> it is they, what they, it is. That, that audience you know, might prefer to see a musical. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to go and, and have someone tell them about why they should be convicted or feel, you know, compelled right. by a, a, a social issue that's upsetting or disturbing. So anyway, this is where I found myself. I mean, I, and I, I, I was, I was disappointed in my career and also disappointed with the, um, you know, like the depth, that I felt I was going in with my actual acting. Okay. And, um, and so, uh, you know, those, those experiences I had in my life made me say, well, why is it, is it really so important that I go do another production of Midsummer Night's Dream right now or another production of this or that play that really isn't speaking to the moment, like speaking to the, the 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 desperation that I'm becoming aware that Americans are feeling, and that there's no reflection in in uh, in our culture and in art. You don't turn on TV and see a show about the absolutely uh, dehumanizing experience that someone has had being ground up because by the, you know, by, by not having the right insurance or something like that. It's always like an episode about a, a surgeon who saves someone, you know what I mean? Right. It's about this heroic aspect of our, our medical system. You don't see the, like the, the, the desperate and petty agony of someone going through a pile of medical bills, trying to figure out how they're going to pay those off and stay in their house. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. And I just felt I felt like I got to do something. I got to put myself on the line. Yeah. And take a leap of faith and and let my art um be connected to who I am as a citizen, who I am as a spiritual person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um and so in the beginning that there, there was a real risk involved like how am I going to stay alive if I just go go out and, and start performing this play in church basements and, you know, passing the hat around after the show. <laughs> but 
it was absolutely a remarkable experience of, you know, is it Emerson? If you step confidently in the direction of your dreams or something like, you know, the angels will help lift you up or something like that. That's mm. a bad, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to Google it anyway. So I, I'm, I'll go with your version. Yeah. Uh, oh, I can just say whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so it was remarkable. The piece resonated. And then people who saw the play contacted their friends around the country said, you gotta, you gotta bring this play out and, and do it. And so it just happened like a kind of grassroots thing. And then it grew to, you know, people at institutions started bringing me in. And, you know, if I go perform at the Mayo Clinic, I don't have to pass the hat around. I can make them pay me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I think for me, like the, the, the element of faith was um, making a transition from, from just living a life and, and, going about a professional life that was dictated by the systems and and structures that are already in place and my trying to fit myself into and conform to those structures even though it felt like a kind of mutilation of my own of my soul you know of mm. who I am of, of what what I value and so I had to leave those things and step out into the unknown and that's a leap of faith and it's exhilarating and terrifying mm. and um but it's alive you know and so no regrets no oh absolutely not absolutely not i mean i'm still trying to figure things out and and i don't think that that journey ever ends mm-hmm. um but but uh, i feel like i i i woke up and had a a kind of um uh, second birth, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. Well, they, they say once you've seen, you can't unsee, right? Yeah. That, I think that is true. Yeah. Mm. And then, and then also just in terms of the process of performing the play, um, for me is a deeply, uh, spiritual challenge because, um, it's a, it's a very painful piece and, to put myself in, in, in Joe's shoes, that's the character's name, you know, mm-hmm. of, of, of experiencing the agony that he's going through with the loss of his wife and, and the anger and the frustration and the grief. Um, to, to really convey that, I have to let go of a lot of things in myself, you know, like I have to let go of some ego stuff of wanting to look good in front of people, you know, like, Mm. like the the things that motivate someone to be an actor are often, you know, there's a kind of vanity there. Yeah. But to, to really do this story justice and, and, and share this guy's, uh, story, I have to let go of that that vanity and that desire to please the audience and just sort of stand in front of the audience, uh, kind of, you know, uh, very vulnerable and, and, uh, sort of strip down all those ego trappings and, and, uh, allow myself to be a vessel for this guy's story. So Mm. the, the process of, of how to do that for me has been, you know, uh, interesting investigation and I think like you know a a kind of inquiry into what is the spiritual practice of an actor yeah Mm -hmm. Um, because for you know for for an actor the theater is our is our church right Mm -hmm. it's our place where we where we commune with the audience and and so you know I think every every profession has a spiritual component to it potentially um even hedge fund manager i think (laughs) that's not something you hear you hear get uh proposed every day (laughs) the church of the hedge fund (laughs) mortgage derivatives like there's a ethical and spiritual way to go about that maybe i don't know so anyway many a hedge fund have financed the buildings of churches i think but nevertheless, nevertheless Hey, Mike. Um, not to cu- not to cut you off on this, but one of the things I want to make sure that we we get a chance to cover here is 
Um, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the details of like your, you know, your personal passion of kind of, um, universal healthcare for you. I think it's a single payer system makes the most sense. But one of the things, and one of the reasons I even brought you on is I know that your heart is that you want something that works. So it's not like you're just tied in. It has to be a single payer system and whatever, whatever works for everyone is great by you, which I just appreciate your heart in that. And it, it helps make me feel safer with you because I know you're just looking for the truth of what works. Um, and I know that there's things I've read statistics to say somewhere between even 60 to 70% of, of people's bankruptcies are due to medical expenses. I don't know what your statistics are on that, but, um, yeah, that's, that's about right. And the, the statistic that goes along with it is somewhere in the 70% of those people who go through those bankruptcies have insurance. Wow. You know? So that's, and people with insurance would never think that's a possibility, right? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, like insurance, uh, they, they don't believe that something, they have it, so they don't think that anything bad could happen to them. But it, I think insurance can be like a parachute that you didn't pack yourself. You don't really know what's in it hmm. until you jump out of the airplane, and then you find out, oh, oh, there's a big hole in the parachute. Yeah. <laughs> and you're shouting but Uh people on the airplane don't have any idea and still would never believe that theirs isn't going to work for them Hmm. um so so i think that's a that's a big issue as Hmm. in terms of what you're saying about single payer too like yeah that's my that's that's my preferred solution but um i think we need to move that conversation to universal health care like how can we have healthcare for all Americans, hmm. uh, and there's actually a whole spectrum of, of um, you know, of solutions to that that are that that you could say lie on the political left or the political right, and that would be a wonderful debate for us to have. Like, are we going to have a conservative universal healthcare system? We're going to have a progressive universal healthcare system, hmm. and personally, I I don't really care either way. Um, if you look around the world, there's, uh, you know, many, many dozens and dozens of examples of actually most of the modern, um, uh, industrialized countries have universal health care and they're different forms. There's England where you lived, where mm-hmm. it's government run, government owned. You work for the government. If you're a doctor, there's Canada, which is you work for yourself, but the Financing is 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 uh, publicly organized. There's Switzerland where it's private insurance. There's German where it's all these large not-for-profit health funds. There's Japan where they just control the prices. Where it's, you know, so there's all these different systems. There's Singapore which is sort of the conservative model where everyone has a health savings account and a catastrophic plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are all of these different solutions um the important thing is that we we make that we decide as americans that we want it Hmm. yeah that we want this that we that our value is that we want uh our fellow americans to have access to health care that we want people to not die alone in their apartment you know because they didn't have the money to go to the doctor. Yeah. Um, and one of, one of the things that, that I know I've brought up to you before is that, um, and really one of the, I think it was a tipping point for me was, you know, I have no problem when we've kind of assumed as Americans that it's a basic right that a kid would have an education. Like that's, we have a public school system where we feel like, you know, every kid has a right to a basic education. And, yeah. um, and yet, I thought there was so it was when the issue of morality entered into is there a is there a moral rightness or wrong you know I feel a little bit when the morality of it having health care for everyone came into it it just the I don't know that it tipped for me so the conversation changed and one of the things that um you know we've also kind of we hear a lot is that you know you say universal health care um and uh, there's some triggers there, right? You know, you there's so much political association with some of these conversations that you hear a certain term or a certain phrase, and it just sends off all these reactions from people, and really in an unhelpful way, I think. Yeah, I think 
I think, uh, for example, um, I think for a lot of people, I mean, what does that what does that drop for you? What kind of triggers does that does that draw? Well, they're different ones now than they right. used to be. But you know, for me, if someone said Obamacare eight years ago, then I, some of my associations were still that I associate with big government. The government's trying to get into my life, and I don't want them trying to tell me what I can or can't do. You know, your neighbors are thinking, okay, Obama's coming for my guns, and the government's, you know, it's right. conspiracy stuff and. And it just, it was nothing to do with people's health. It was, it became yeah. a class warfare type thing and, um, you know, entitlements. And that word itself was a trigger for like, you got people saying, see, they're not working for what, you know, I've worked for what I have and they haven't worked for what they're, they're getting the result of a lack of effort. And, and it's right, just right. all these assumptions and things built in that were just really unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think unfortunately, uh, to some extent, you know, um, Obamacare exacerbates some of those feelings because it isn't a universal system, right? Right. right. It is. It isn't a universal health care. Um, if it were, maybe some of those feelings would go away. Does that make any sense? Like, yeah, I think I heard. I heard you interviewed one time where somebody was talking about Obamacare, and they said the Affordable Care Act. The best part about it was that it it showed America's intention to want universal health care for everyone, but it didn't actually get us there. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think I, I think there's something to that. It okay. it reminds me of um, uh, when I I was performing my show in West Virginia, and I stayed with a couple doctors, and um, you know, this guy was he 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 treated um, people who were, uh, in a Mennonite community near there. Okay. And when someone was sick in their community, they took a collection up, right. As community (laughs) and they paid for that person. Right. Mm. And his wife actually did a lot of work in Guatemala and she, she had a similar experience. Like she was in a village and someone was sick and the villagers took up a collection to help their, you know, the, the, their neighbor. Hmm. And so to me, that's, that is the natural thing. Like that is, that is the way we are naturally inclined. Yeah. When someone gets sick in our community, what do we do? We, we set up a bake sale, mm-hmm. right? And this is, this is in my play. Like they set up a bake sale at the church. Yes. That's, that's our natural inclination, right? To mm-hmm. take care of each other. But the bake sale doesn't really help when you're facing $70,000 bills, right? Right. It's a nice gesture, but it doesn't help, really. Hmm. And so, um, so but, I, but I think it's important that we accept that we do want to help take care of each other. Like my, you know, sometimes I get people will say to me, oh, you want something for free. I'm like, I don't want anything for free. I want to pay a little extra tax and I don't want to pay a premium to, so that a, the CEO of United Health can take home $100 million a year, right? Hmm. I'd, rather, I'd rather pay a tax and know that because I'm paying that, my neighbors are going to be taken care of if they have an emergency. That's, that's my feeling. Um, of course, but there, again, there's other ways to to deal with it. Uh, I had a, this incredible experience after a show in Columbus, um, where we had a talk back, and my talk back was led by the former head of the teachers union from Cleveland and a guy from the who was a lifelong uh, steel worker, right? So okay. you know they came from a certain perspective. They were presenting on uh, a model of you know, single payer, Medicare for all, expand Medicare to include everyone. That's it. a guy raised his hand, an older gentleman who's a friend of our families. He's a, a lifelong military guy. And he just says, I'm sorry, but um, I, I would describe myself as ultra conservative is what he said. He, and he says, government cannot do anything, right? That was his, <laughs> you know, which was interesting, like as a guy who spent his life in the military and then in the defense industry that mm-hmm. he would have that insight that the government ca- cannot. Well, the government is not known for efficiency. This <laughs> efficiency. is true. Yeah. So, 
and his wife um, uh, is a CEO of a, a, a mid-sized company. And the, all of these people went out to dinner afterwards, right? Okay. Um, and we had a conversation. I was sitting next to his wife, and he said, you know, Mike, the play was very compelling and moving, and, and we, you know, we, we're sympathetic. It's just we have a different solution. I said, well, what's your solution? And she said, well, you know, if I was in charge, I would make all insurance companies and hospitals not for profit. And I would cap the executive salary and, you know, CEO salaries of those uh, of those organizations at, I'd say, like $250,000 a year. She said, because there are a lot of people in the community who would who would love to do those jobs out of a sense of service. And I said, oh, well, that's very interesting, <laughs> right? Because what she's describing is, in my opinion, much more, you know, radical than Obamacare. But I would welcome those solutions that she's describing. Does that make sense? Yeah. But, in her, but it made me realize in, in her mind, like, that's not big government because it's, it's not for profit, right? Mm. And it's, and it's uh, I, think, I think for a lot of people, like, what I describe, the sort of Medicare for all solution conjures up images of, you know, like, tens of thousands of bureaucrats in Washington, you know, government employees going through claims, all this stuff. The reality is that Medicare is a lean and mean, um, well, not mean, I would say, <laughs> but, but lean um, uh, bureaucracy. I think there's about three or 4,000 full-time federal employees. They contract out a lot of the claims processing to um, other companies like Nationwide, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, through contract bids. So, so, and also, you know, the, the other, uh, system that I, that people often bring up is Canada, um, which is one model of, of how you could go about it. Uh, Canada actually, we think of it as a universal system that's run by the, their federal government, but it isn't, it's actually run on a provincial level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we could have something like that, like, you know, that, that the system is administered at the state level. And, yeah. you know, is that there's an elected person who who is responsive to the citizens and yeah. worried about their job if they mess it up. Right. 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 And, I, and let's be clear. I mean, this is not an easy it's not an easy answer because, I mean, you know, I've, I've got family and friends from Canada that that like their health care system sometimes. And other times they're like, well, they want to come down to the states to see a doctor sometimes. Um, you know, there's issues about, you know, I grew up around insurance and there's certainly issues with that side of the industry, but there's also some fiscal realities of the nature of what insurance is that, that they can't control if they can't control costs and, and, and such. So, yeah. um, but I, the, one of the things I think is so critical here is that that's why the, the importance of this conversation to me is, um, again, just kind of recalibrating what our core conviction is about what's driving us towards solutions so that it doesn't become a political issue, but it becomes a question of how can we best serve each other. And um, to that end, I don't, I know there's so many details and back and forth nature of all this, and we're not trying to cover it all, but I was kind of interacting with a doctor friend. Um, I've had some doctors tell me if we just cut out fast food, the whole system would be fine. Um, <laughs> and totally, he's totally yeah. serious. Um, yeah. Others blame the government, you know, others blame, you know, there's issues within the court system of, of, you know, the malpractice. Yeah, malpractice costs and the awards that are given by the courts that, um, but one, one doctor that works in a rural area, um, asked, was asking me, um, she said, you know, there's already sort of a national shortage of, of primary care physicians, um, and it's predicted to get worse over the next five years. And so she was wondering, like, how would a single-payer system affect that shortage? Because, you know, in theory, if more patients having access to care make it, might even put a heavier draw on the time, you know, the manner in which a, a physician could could care for them. You'd have higher yeah. rates of hospitalization, et cetera. So, and especially those rural communities, you know, they might even be hit the hardest. So what, you know, this is just one of many issues, but what do you think you'd say to something like that? Um, I, I would say that, that, uh, 
that's a that's a huge issue and that's what my other play is about side effects is about the disappearance of um primary care physicians in primary practice from mm. because of burnout basically you know and and the immense overhead that is required to to have your own private practice um the average doctor in america requires like three and a half administrative assistance just to handle, um, you know, insurance claims, uh, the maintenance of the burdensome electronic medical records. Um, in comparison in France, for example, you can go to the doctor and there is no one in the doctor's office, but the doctor, because all of that overhead that we repeat for each individual doctor is taken care of by, you know, publicly. So the doctor is there by themselves. And so they're not dealing with any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of the shortage in primary care, I think that also is, is reflected by the way that we pay doctors. Um, we pay specialists much, much, uh, uh, being a specialist is much more lucrative than being a primary care physician. So, um, and we burden our medical students with such incredibly high debt that the idea of going into primary care, which is going to pay less, isn't appealing. Yeah. So the incentives so, for, for medical care, I mean, for physicians these days is not there in the same way it used to yeah, be. Yeah. I mean, they, they go into, you know, they, they become specialists. And so we, we do have a, a shortage of primary care physicians that we should address, in my opinion, a couple ways by changing the reimbursement rates, mm. uh, by also, you know, endowing medical residencies and, um, you know, having more uh, sponsorship, public sponsorship of, of qualified students to go into uh, primary care. Mm. Yeah. I, I would also like to see a couple you know, that, that there are public, um, medical schools where we sort of grow our own primary care physicians. Yeah. Mm. We have a deep public interest in, in having more primary care physicians. Um, for example, Cuba, uh, Cuba has incredible they have a lot of problems in Cuba. Obviously. See, you're trying not to sound like a communist, and now you're bringing up Cuba as an example. <laughs> Cuba, like, has incredible medical schools that churns out doctors for, you know, South America. Like, mm -hmm. so many doctors. And along those lines, like, we should make it easy and um, enticing to bring qualified doctors in from around the world who want to come and and uh, practice in the United States, which is actually a reality. Like mm. we there are a lot of doctors from India, from the Middle East, from Russia uh, who come here and they serve a lot of a lot of communities that otherwise wouldn't have a primary care physician in the community. So, mm. you know, like trying to scare away immigrants is is not a great way to uh, bolster our primary care population <laughs> well but but it, but it does seem to me problematic that that just her question well you know how how are we gonna how are we gonna take care of people if everybody has access to health care that kind of is a is a sad question yeah that, that we have for ourselves that the idea that we need to, as some people just need to be, you know. Well, I, I don't think most people, out. yeah, I just to, I mean, I know that this is actually a, there's actually a, there's a married couple that are both, doc, both physicians and, and, um, you know, their follow-up questions were, were along that same line. It's a sad reality. I mean, they're great people and they're not I'm at this sure. point yet, yeah, but, absolutely. um, cause yeah. their further concerns are, you know, with the more patient loads and more visits, like, primary care physicians Ballers. already face high burnout and depression and substance abuse and divorce and all these things that are just at high rates already. And they're like, Hey, you know, from those primary care physicians are there because they care, which like you said, this new play of yours side effects is really very important on the other side of the scale here, because 
those physicians are there because they care and they are already overburdened. And so to look to yep. them to say, fix it, it's like, you know, like they're, we're back to the, the drowning at sea thing. They're already treading water. It's hard to save the other person. So, yeah, yeah. yeah um, absolutely. And I, there well, was one, I think, go ahead. I think we can simplify things for them so that they're not spending two, three hours a day um, dealing with, you know, their electronic medical record, which right. is designed not for medical purposes, but for billing and billing purposes, basically. Right. Know? Right. And I, and like I just time's getting away from us here, so I don't want to go to all the details, but because there really are so many. I mean, one of the things we haven't even talked about when it comes to billing and such is that the idea that you kind of alluded to it earlier on about the first question is what kind of insurance do you have? Well, because there's no set price. I mean, we all know when we go to the doctor, it's like, how much does this cost? What do you mean? How much does it yeah. cost? Could cost you two thousand. Could cost you three hundred, depending on what card you slide across the table right now. And um, yeah. so beyond that, though, this side effect, you know, when with Mercy Killers, you talk about it's the story of um, of a just a citizen, just an average patient um, family that's broken by the system. And then this new play of side effects. One of the quotes I saw was that. Um, that your new play examines the challenges confronting primary care doctors in America. Medicine is a trust earned by listening in this doctor's in the, but I can't hear anymore says the broken physician in your new play. And, um, and it's just about you. This thing said you were striving to put a human face on, on that. But I just thought what a, if people can see that tension that you have doctors that are trying to care for people and yet the burden of the system is too much to allow them to do that. And then the people themselves are being overwhelmed by this. And if my core conviction of my humanity of my faith is that I want, I think it's reasonable that we have this, we're a wealthy nation. This is not, not doable. Then let's focus the conversation there. And, um, whatever works for everyone, we can, we can figure something out. I mean, there's going to be change required, but it's not a, um, I don't know. I think if people can see, which is why I appreciate your work so much is that you're not just telling us one side of the story. You really are trying to be really, really open and honest that this is, there's a lot of sides to this and, and everybody's losing right now, really <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. Um, so, well, Mike, yeah. as we, um, as we kind of wrap up here, you know, what do you think are the next best steps for people, you know, next best, next best steps. Um, and also just what are the questions you wish that people were asking right now? Uh, well, I, I, I think the next best, most important thing right now is that people um, make themselves heard uh, to their representatives uh, because we're facing a situation where, you know, of deep transition um, where the Affordable Care Act is going to be repealed. And people really need to to let their voices be heard about what is going to replace it and need to do some research about what was in the Affordable Care Act um, so that they know what is going to be lost. And mm-hmm. the important things to me that that were in it that need to be preserved are we cannot go back to a system where people who have pre-existing conditions don't have access to health insurance or health care. And we cannot um, make those people pay, you know, 10, 20 times what no other people pay. Hmm. Um, it's just, it's, it's morally unacceptable. And I think most people agree with that. Hmm. But, but I think our representatives need to, to hear from the citizens that that is pretty much a consensus among people. Hmm. Um, and then and by I the way, the other- Mike, before you even go on, I just want to clarify one thing for people is that so often these days, someone says, talk to your representative. They think of that as a protest conversation. Like, you know, no, I don't want this yeah. to happen, but I just want to clarify. This is not a protest conversation. This is a call someone who represents you and help share your heart with them. Like this is yeah. a representatives of you need to know how to represent your heart and your, your yeah. convictions to the nation. And, and I think, I think also what you're doing is you're empowering your representative. Yeah. You're empowering them and letting them know that they have the community's support to make a decision and decisions and choices that might not 
you know, where they're putting themselves on the line, too, with Mm -hmm. the special interests and big lobbyists who are funding their campaigns. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. like the community needs to say, no, you you have our support and we want you to to, um, you know, to 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 be on our side and not on the special interest side. Like as long as you just share our heart with the at the national level, then you'll keep your job. That's which is what many of them have to worry about. Yeah. yeah. And I think I think the other thing in the Affordable Care Act is, um, well, there's lots of things, but, you know, the annual limit to what a person can owe out of pocket mm-hmm. um, and then also getting rid of lifetime limits uh, before it was passed. Once you hit, say, two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, the insurance could say, oh, well, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. You're done. Yeah. Uh, so those those three things are are uh, to me, you know, the sort of moral core of what was in the Affordable Care Act. And we can um, build on that, right? I think, you know, um, well, that if you keep those things right, mm-hmm. then it it is a puzzle. It, mm-hmm. it does create a puzzle like, OK. Well, if we're going to not leave people with pre-existing conditions out to the wolves, that is going to raise costs. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to pay for it. We all are. So if we are going to do that, then how are we going to save money in other areas so that we can afford to do that? Right. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, that makes me say, well, do we need to repeat uh, and replicate these private insurance bureaucracies over and over and over again? Because all of that adds, in my opinion, a kind of deadweight cost to the whole system. Um, but at, or other, you know, can we make prices more transparent so that there's there's more competition? Um, there's all sorts of different opinions and ways to try to get the money to afford these things. Um, but, but it really will require, uh, honest look at the whole system. Mm. But as we were saying earlier, what is most required is that we assert our values so that the conversation happens within the context of these values that we are, you know, Mm. and that that value is that we, you know, we don't want Americans to be left behind. Yeah. And, and we're, we're at the heart of fearless questions now, which is what, you know, uh, we're about freedom. We want a fullness of life for people that I believe God created people for. And, you know, we talk about that, you know, scripture talks about, um, you know, perfect love drives out fear and that, but the opposite is also true that fear drives out love and it's hard to love something you're afraid of. And honestly, even conversations like this, people are afraid of it because it's so big and so we forget to love our neighbors, you know, we forget to love the people across the street and, and other parts of our nation. And, and for me, I'm just, I'm right here with you. It's like, let's, uh, let's keep that in the forefront of, um, what this conversation is about. But, um, well, Mike, um, you've been really gracious and offering so much of your time and, um, just your energy and your life really towards a, such a, a meaningful, um, thing that affects all of us. And so just really grateful for that. Um, I know we had talked and you said that we'll, we'll add this to the page notes on the show notes, but you've offered to, to send a link to a recording of uh, mercy killers for people that might want to see that. Yeah. Um, maybe we can throw some other articles that just might kind of prime the pump of some different perspectives on, on healthcare. Um, and, um, you know, I guess, um, I guess the one other thing I would say is just, uh, well, the one thing I can't get in my mind is like I'm going to get all these emails now because everybody's there's so many triggers that happens with healthcare. So I'm going to get a lot of angry emails and messages now. So thank you. And um, <laughs> what was that liberal friend of yours that you had on? You know, talking about Cuba. Um, yeah, just thanks for being here, man. Thanks for for putting your voice out in the world and for um, for caring about people. You can the way you, you do. can edit that uh, Cuba part out if, if it no, man, just save you some. No, no, no. We need to have the conversation, right? There's, people are people. Uh, so. <laughs> here's uh, here's my final thought, okay. which is right. um, 
my some of my ancestors were Moravians, which is a you know a a, a group that came to America early. Christian group. There's still the Moravian Church is still here in America, but um, they had a wonderful motto that uh, is attributed to them that 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 helps me frame this question about healthcare and a lot of other questions um, that we face. And it and their motto goes like this: In that which is essential, unity. In that which is not essential, liberty. In all things, love. And um, when I when I dwell on that little statement, a lot of things open up for me and become possible. And and it, it, it sort of like asks us to let go of our um, ideology and um, approach things more from a perspective of of an open, loving heart. And when we do that, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of new possibilities uh, open up for us. Mm. So. That's beautiful. Thanks, man. Mike, thanks so much for for spending your time with us today. And I hope that uh, I hope this encourages a lot of people to to invest themselves in learning more, and then um, going and sharing their hearts and with their representatives and their neighbors and friends, and that uh, we'll all experience uh, positive stuff out of this. So, thanks so much, man. Thanks, Jeff, and, and thanks for, uh, for hosting the dialogue. Yeah, no problem. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye.